Zivie Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zivieowens.com for updates on podcast guests and lots of live events. Today's episode has been sponsored by But That's Another Story with host Will Schwalbe. Will is actually an author on my podcast because he has written two fantastic books called The End of Your Life Book Club and Books for Living. He loves asking people what books they're reading and finds fantastic answers. And so dedicated a whole podcast to finding out what notable figures, including authors and celebrities, are reading. He's had guests like Kevin Kwan, Melinda Gates, Peter Hedges, and Jodie Foster, and has had many guests that I've also had on this podcast, including Min Jin Lee, Danny Shapiro, Gretchen Rubin, Michael Frank, and Pamela Paul. So you should listen to his episodes and go back and listen to some of my episodes and check out his podcast. It's an insightful show. It's full of moving stories and you'll find even more books to add to your TBR list than I have on this show. So uh, check out, but that's another story with Will Schwalbe. I'm on Skype today with Lee Madalone, who's the author of debut novel, Homemaking. Her writing has been featured in LitHub, The Rumpus, The Offing, and Denver Quarterly. She is currently a lecturer at Clemson University and lives in Greenville, South Carolina. So welcome, Lee. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Yeah, thank you so much. So can you please tell listeners what homemaking is about? So I'm generally terrible about talking about my own work, but I'll do my best to offer some sort of coherent summary. So the novel really follows these three characters who are on these individual yet intersecting journeys, if you could call it that, to figure out how they fit into the world. So one of those characters is Sybil, who was born in occupation-era Tokyo to a young Japanese woman and this French soldier. They have this brief affair, this child is produced, and then this baby is subsequently adopted and brought to the United States by an American general and his wife. So one thread of the novel follows Sybil from childhood to adulthood. The next major character is Sybil's daughter, Chloe, who the narrative follows as she's sort of trying to remake a home in the wake of her marriage dissolving. I'll try not to give more away than that. And then there's Bo, who's Chloe's best friend, and he's sort of shepherding Chloe through this period of time in which he's grieving. And at the same time, he's trying to reconcile his own romantic failings and rekindle this relationship with a man from his youth. So all three characters are really united in this quest. I suppose you can call it to isolate some sense of identity or belonging, however romantic that notion may be. So how did you come up with this? How did you come up with the characters? How did you come up with their relationships to each other? Honestly, the scene at the orphanage in the beginning where the baby is like reaching out and grabs the American general and like that changes the trajectory of basically everyone in the book. But it's like stayed with me. That's so visual and like how, anyway, I didn't explain that well. So maybe you want to take that and run with it. (laughs) (laughs) I can talk generally just about my interest in the space making and house aspect of things. I've always been really interested in how we construct spaces, which sounds lofty, I think, but really I'm just interested in putting houses together. I've always enjoyed that sort of domestic activity. Um, really good at cleaning things or like finding things at antique stores and thrift stores and making them work in a home and cooking and the thinking about the conversations we have in these private spaces and around a table or in our bedrooms. So those things have always been fascinating to me. 
But in the germination stage of the book, I was reading a lot of architectural theory and books on aesthetics. So I was reading Le Cabousier and Bachelard, this book, The Poetics of Space, that pops up overtly in the novel, and then Tanizaki's In Praise of Shadows. So I was just immersing myself really in these ideas. And at the time, I was also really interested in the work of this artist, James Terrell, who talks a lot about perception, and his medium is light specifically. But I was living in New Orleans when I started writing the book and took a few trips to Houston, where there is one of James Terrell's sky spaces. And for anyone that's not familiar with them, there are these structures, and the one in Houston at Rice University is built on a small hill, and there's this seating oriented beneath this flat ceiling with a square cutout and it brings the sky down to your level and sort of alters your relationship to space. So he talks a lot about how we create these realities that we live in and that perception is really an important aspect of how we exist in the world. And I was really interested in that idea of creating our own realities, especially as it relates to our homes and the spaces we live in. So I think our homes and how we configure them say a lot about who we are and what we value. So like the books on our table, our coffee table, say something about us, how we arrange the plates in our cabinet, say something about us. So we really do construct these little worlds and realities. And I think that's really rich fodder for fiction. So I'm hoping that the way I arrange the stuff inside my pantry cabinet says nothing about me because you don't even want to look at like the food. Like, oh my gosh. Plates, I think plates are okay. Plates are stacked. That's pretty simple, but. <laughs> pantry. Yeah. <laughs> I loved how you structured the book in that in the beginning, it was more about the characters and then you went into each room. Each chapter is named after a certain room. Mm-hmm. And the theme of making your own house, like per the title and everything, course through everything, but really it was just the stage on which you had the characters' lives sort of play out. How did you come up with the idea for the structure of it and also the alternating viewpoints of the different characters? Yeah, so the alternating viewpoints and the structure of the book as a whole has really evolved significantly over time. Before I started working with my agent, each character section was presented in full before moving on to another character's sort of section or life. So, for example, the Chloe section was one novella-length piece. So the dining room chapter would lead directly into the kitchen chapter, which we lead directly into the next chapter. So you got a full character in one big chunk. And then my agent really helped me to establish this structure and make this critical structural choice in weaving the narratives together. And I I realized how much richer Chloe's narrative or Beau's narrative is or are when you take them as these like pieces, these threads that are sort of interacting with one another. And you see how their concerns are really of a piece and that I think there's a certain universality to this idea of making a home that we all sort of want to do that. And all the characters are trying to do that in their own way. And I think that woven structure really conveys that message. As far as the rooms individually, I'm not sure where that exactly came from. It just felt organic and sort of an appropriate way of sort of engaging with the ideas like your romantic relationship, a bedroom, the bathroom you share with your significant other, these sort of ideas and things you think about in those rooms. It it just seemed like a natural way of broaching these subjects by engaging with the rooms themselves. So you seem like a total pro in terms of all the thought that went behind it and the research, and yet this is your debut novel. Did you just decide, I want to write a novel? Like, where did this even come from in your life? I never decided 
consciously to write a novel. I thought as a writer, I would never write a novel. If you look at my other work, I write really short things. And I really like the short sort of micro length work and what that can do. So it was really an accident that this happened. And I have never certainly renovated a home or even owned a home. And I think it's more of an idea that I would like to engage with one day in a real way. But yeah, I I think I was just, like I said earlier, just thinking about a lot of these things and obsessing over them. And then it grew from a story into a novella into a novel. And so it sort of felt like I, it sort of felt inevitable, which I think is, I think a healthy way to write a novel. I don't know. It didn't ever, never felt forced. I wasn't trying to write a novel. It just happened. So Excellent. And let's talk a little more about the book. There's this one long quote that I just have to read, if you don't mind. This is in the chapter from Ayumi. Your quote is, okay, for those that didn't have happy childhoods, there are two ways to parent if you choose to enter motherhood, and you put that with a capital M. You can hammer into your own child the lessons you were forced to learn, spanking the way you were spanked, refusing to dote the way your parents refused to dote on you, to show the child that the world is cyclical and that you don't deserve anything better than what you yourself got from your mother and father. Or you, the parent with the unhappy child, can say, I'm going to give this child everything I didn't have, and you will commit entirely to this thing. You will give everything to this child, to this role of mother, capital M, even at the expense of your own personal gratification and independence, because what matters is showing your child that not all people are hopeless, that things can be good. They can. You can choose the second option because you understand you can never forget the childhood you were delivered. Wow. So talk to me more about this passage and where this idea of taking your childhood into your parenting came from. I know you don't have kids of your own. Like, where did this whole thing, because you have a lot about conscious decision-making as a mother and why the capitals? (laughs) I think this is an idea that I sort of assembled from observing my own parents and the way that they were parented and then the way that they parented my brother and I. My mother's adopted, and I think the child who is an adopted child or someone who is adopted has a unique perspective on motherhood or parenthood. I talk about motherhood a lot more in the book than about fatherhood. So I'll just say motherhood here. So that relationship or that dynamic was always interesting to me. And then I think my father similarly had, not similarly, but in his own way, had a difficult relationship with his parents. So I think I just sort of gleaned that mothering and parenthood was never something that you just sort of fell into, that it, that there are sort of choices to be made. And whether conscientiously or not, I think we, we decide to parent a certain way if we humans, not me, as you said, I don't have children. But And so I think that I saw parents who had poor childhoods or difficult childhoods either parent in a sort of vindictive way or a sort of iterative way, like things need to continue on this pattern because I was treated this way, I will continue to act this way. This is, you know, the model of passing down from one parent to another. And then maybe on the other side of things, like a parent who will parent in a merciful way, like I I want to make this better. I want to show my child that you know, you can have a happy childhood and grow up and have hope. So, I mean, I think in the book, I I made it a little more black and white than in reality for the sake of fiction. But I, yeah, it's an idea that's really compelling to me of, um, you know, the ideas we inherit from the way we were parented and how we can pass those on in our own parenting styles to our children. But I suppose you're a mother and I don't know if it's fair to ask you, like, what is compelling about that concept to you? Or can you relate to that? I can absolutely relate to that because I'm always like, 
My mother, you know, even something as simple as eating, right? Like my mother used to hide chocolate chip cookies on a higher shelf so I couldn't reach them. So now I'm like, I have, we have cookies for breakfast over here. Do you know what I mean? Like, like things that she restricted, I want to make sure I never restrict. So some of the things are conscious, yes. And like the things that hurt you, you, you overcompensate perhaps and not doing the same things. I'm sure I've made other mistakes that my kids will then compensate by doing the opposite with their kids. But, you know, it's all, I agree. It's like a, a cycle. It just, the importance you gave to the mother with the unhappy childhood and the decision to parent a certain way. I don't know. I just thought that was really cool. Like very, you know, it's nice to have a literary interpretation of my everyday life. <laughs> so I liked it. <laughs> so back to this homemaking aspect of the book, Chloe, who's the daughter who then grows up and has her own story, the novella. She doubts herself and her ability to make a home, which I think also a lot of people can relate to. And she thinks some women do this all their lives, iron, rear, sweep, wash, fold, brush, wipe. For the entirety of their adult lives, they make homes, they make other people, they make families, but no one talks about how difficult it is. I don't think it's any easier for a woman with a pretty husband and a pretty six-year-old daughter. Beneath the prettiness, we are all a mess. We are all struggling. We do not know how to make a home. Is this how you feel in any way? I know you're not aspiring necessarily to create this per se in your life right now, but Um, (laughs) do you think we're all a mess? Do you feel like you're a mess? I mean, I think that we're all have a lot more going on than we make it seem like perhaps. And I think that the domestic realm is just a really rich sort of arena for like engaging with a range of issues. So I remember as a younger writer talking with this, this novelist who her, she's a fiction writer, she writes stories and novels, but she, her first book was really about these sort of like stereotypically masculine issues of work and violence and things like that. And it was much celebrated. And then she spoke about having a child and after that and how her life became breastfeeding and the sort of typical things that have to do with the domestic life and how she as a writer felt sort of crippled by the fact that like maybe her new life wasn't rich enough for fiction or something. And I thought that was really interesting, an interesting idea for a female writer to grapple with. And I felt I empathized with that a little bit as well. And obviously I've come to terms with it and begun to understand that, understand that, you know, these are really rich sources for fiction and for narrative and that our lives are extremely complicated, even like, you know, when we invite someone over to our house and the how we present ourselves when we open the door and how we engage at our kitchen tables, like these little mannerisms that we share and the things that we do in our homes are really complex and nuanced and worthy of digging into. So yeah, I I don't think messy, I don't mean messy in necessarily the worst way, but I think just messy in that it's like complicated and yes, this word I keep using rich. So I guess if lives weren't complicated, we wouldn't have all these great books. Right? right. If everybody just had like a perfect, simple life, there'd be nothing fun to read about and yeah, exactly. talk about or anyway. <laughs> this one sentence struck me as just so sad when you have a, this couple moving into their first home and building it together. And you say part of building a house necessitates living in denial that it could ever fall apart. I feel mm-hmm. like you just like took a sledgehammer on the like housewarming party, housewarming, <laughs> like happiness. And, you know, it's like pointing out that everybody get half of people get divorced on the wedding day or something, you know, but it's like a sad reality, right? So yeah. how do you come to terms with the fact that people are always making homes and yet 
dot, 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 what happens? Yeah. I mean, I think this building a home is just a great metaphor for like building a relationship with someone, you know, in, in similar ways, you can't buy a house thinking about all the work you're going to have to put into it. And otherwise I feel like no one would ever do it. And the same way with a relationship, you can't go in thinking about the potential for abandonment and all these things, like at a certain point, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Like you can't, you have to just go into it being hopeful. So I just think it's an appropriate metaphor for relationship building. And I, I guess I don't see it total in a totally bleak way, but it's more like you just have to be optimistic. Yeah, right? that's true. I guess it's how you go into it. Right. <laughs> so can you give me a little more background about you? Like where did you grow up and how did you end up where you are now? And like your education, how writing came into it and just how we ended up on Skype together today, sort of. <laughs> I did grow up in Virginia. I grew up in the suburbs of DC and I studied at the University of Virginia. And I actually didn't really start writing in an active way until probably my freshman or sophomore year of college. I went into university thinking I would go into politics and I was an IR major and then made this shift to English. I took a creative writing workshop and then it sort of just took on a life of its own, I suppose. So I did somewhat of the traditional route. I did do an MFA in Louisiana, which I finished actually a year ago somehow. But I took some time off about five years and I was just living in New Orleans and New York City and meandering about for a little bit. And that's sort of what took me to this place now. Excellent. And now that you've written this first novel, well, first of all, so you got an agent. How did you end up with your agent and all of that? I think since I was an undergrad, I've just been publishing stories and I have a website and had a story up there and my agent found it and found my email and reached out to me. So sort of the most fortuitous way of things working out with an agent. So we talked and it just seemed to be a really good fit. She's a really great editor and that was really important to me in working with an agent and not just someone who would find the book package it and sell it, but someone who would actually engage and really understand what I was trying to do with the work. And so Kylie, Kylie Raymond, she's really great. So she found me and we've been together a year and a half or something like that. So. And how do you feel about the book coming out? I know it's a long process, but. It's anxiety inducing to say the least, but I'm trying to be grateful and excited at the same time, though the gut reaction is just fear. and. <laughs> Are you working on anything else now? I am working on a few different things. I'm working on stories and I'm working on a longer nonfiction book project, but that's at a very early stage. And I think I'm just trying to prepare for the book launch in February. So that's kind of occupying most of my mental space, for better or worse. Do you have any advice for aspiring authors? It seems like a lot of you're making it seem pretty easy, right? Like, oh, the novel just, I mean, it sounds in a way like it organically unfolded and then the agent came to you and now you have this beautiful novel that's coming out. And what was like the hardest part? What part did you really struggle with along the way? Tell me, give me some of the pain that went into this. <laughs> well, I, I don't mean to make it seem easy. I think I'll, I'll say I'm, I was very lucky and that a lot of this process is luck, honestly. The painful part of it, is I think just writing for years in a vacuum and thinking that no one will ever read anything and just like, you know, it's not exactly, writing's not exactly the most lucrative career path. So I think you're sort of just 
working away in a room by yourself for years on end and you feel sort of like a mad woman. And then one day it may or may not click. It did click for me. So to go back to your original question about advice for younger writers or aspiring writers, I think that I would just say that you just need to write consistently and sort of take any advice you get with a grain of salt. I think there's, especially now, there's just so much out there of craft essays, but then like the Twitter conversations and then people telling you what you should and shouldn't do, when you should publish, what magazines you should publish in and all of this. And I think it can be really overwhelming. It was for me as a younger writer. And oftentimes I think it made me feel like I didn't fit the mold and therefore would never be a real writer, whatever that means. So I think just trying to ignore as much of that as possible, taking what you find useful, obviously, and being open to criticism, certainly, but also just writing and believing what you do and keeping at it. And also reading, reading a lot, reading as much as possible. But that's probably my best advice for writers. <laughs> and just one other question on something you mentioned that your mother had been adopted. When she read this book, I'm assuming, has she read this book? I shouldn't assume. Yeah. Has she read? Yes, yeah. she has. And how did she, what, how did she feel about it given her own experience? It was a conversation I had with her. I, I took some elements from my life and her life and put it in the book. And I was nervous about that, but my mother and I have a really good relationship. And I think you'd have to ask her how she feels about it. But I, I, I think probably a mix of emotions like I have about the book. But overall, she is very proud of me and of the work. And I think happy with the product. She's not angry at me, in other words. So. Good. Well, that's good. It's always good when our moms are not angry. That's always a good day. <laughs> great. Well, thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you so much. It's been great. It's yeah. an honor. Oh, sure. <laughs> You've been listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books with Zibby Owens. Please make sure to sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com to get more updates about episodes like these and also lots of live events. This episode has been sponsored by the podcast, but that's another story with Will Schwalbe. Check it out for insightful stories to find out what notable figures like authors, actresses, and directors have found to be some of the most powerful books in their lives. You can follow me on Instagram at moms don't have time to read books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You can always email me at zibby at zibby owens.com.